Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism and media. I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for CJR, and today is Thursday, May 18th. We got a great show for you this week. First, we'll run through the big media stories we're watching at CJR, and then we'll take you inside the parallel universe of pro-Trump media over the past week. Finally, I'll be talking to Glenn Birkins, editor and publisher of the Charlotte website, QCityMetro.com, about the fate of the black press and what it means for African-American communities. Joining me on my first two segments this week is Pete Vernon, a CGR Delacorte fellow and author of our morning newsletter, The Media Today, which you can subscribe to on CGR.org. Pete, how's it going? Good. Good to have you back in studio. It's funny, over the last 10 days or so, I feel like I've been waking up every morning with this dread at the pit of my stomach about what news alert I'll be getting on my phone when I check it. It's just been in sort of this crazy, mind-bending situation where there's information coming from all angles, so many scoops to keep track of. It seems like the evening commute has been overtaken by this anxiety that in between subway stations, you're going to fall behind all of this that's going on with the New York Times, Washington Post battling it out and seeming to drop every one of their scoops just as we're leaving the office. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it competition-wise. No, it's been pretty incredible uh, what they've done, and it's great for journalism to see it happening. But in preparation for this podcast, I put together a schedule of the last 10 days of the major stories that have happened. Just because so much has gone on, it's hard to keep up. So it started last Tuesday, May 9th, when James Comey was fired, right? That announcement came out. Spicer was in the briefing room trying to send it out to reporters, and he he couldn't get the computer to work. So he ended up yelling it out to the reporters in the room. Okay, I vaguely remember that. What comes next? Wednesday, May 10th. (sighs) Man. I don't know. Was that the, uh, I don't know. What happened next? Trump meets in the Oval Office with the Russian foreign minister. Gotcha. Lavrov and the ambassador Kislyak. Closed press, right? but with the Russian state news agency there. Just hours after he has fired James Comey for what we would later learn was at least somewhat related to an investigation into Russia's influence on his campaign. So that's Wednesday. The next day, Thursday. Are we back to Russia or are we at Comey? We're at Trump contradicting his spokespeople to admit that, yes, he was thinking about Russia when he fired Comey in an interview with Lester Holt. So on Friday morning... I'm at a loss, man. I, I, can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't play this game. All right. So Friday morning, Trump tweets out his uh, veiled threat to James Comey that he better, he better hope there are no, quote, tapes, uh, which launches a weekend of speculation and plenty of Sunday talk shows going over all of this. Trump is fairly quiet, and then we get to this week when the scoop war really kicks into high gear. On Monday, Washington Post breaks that Trump has shared highly classified information in that Wednesday meeting with the Russians that we now know came from Israel. On Tuesday, the Times breaks a story that Trump asked Comey to, quote, see your way to letting this go in reference to Mike Flynn's, uh, the investigation into Mike Flynn. Then just yesterday, we had the special counsel appointed. We had the Times reporting that the White House knew Flynn was under investigation when they hired him, and the Washington Post reporting that in 2016, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he thought Trump was paid by the Russians. Wow. So tremendous amount of reporting there. You also see places such as Reuters and the Associated Press getting on the action. I've never really been in a situation where it it feels like as if there's so much energy around a storyline. Everyone's kind of circling Trump. Everyone's trying to get the big story, and that's only good for readers. And, you know, before we we came into this segment, I just wanted to to build off of the, you know, the time-lapse theme. The American Health Care Act passed two weeks ago today. That feels like years ago. (laughs) 
All right. So moving on to non-Trump related news, what else are you looking at this week? Another thing that, because of all this news, hasn't gotten as much attention is the situation for journalists outside of the U.S. And one big piece of news was that a Mexican journalist by the name of Javier Valdez, who had reported on the drug trade in Mexico and organized crime there, was killed in the Sinaloa state, which is where El Chapo formerly was in charge of the cartel there. Mm. Um, This is a guy who had won a Press Freedom Award from the Committee to Protect Journalists, a very well-known, well-respected reporter who was killed. He was the fifth journalist killed in Mexico this year and just highlighted this really awful situation for journalists where they can be killed with impunity, whether that's by drug cartels, organized crime figures, often those two are tied together. Or the government. Or the government. Whatever Uh, state that they're reporting on. And I think we're going to have a piece coming up about this soon on CJR, but it's a story that, you know, in a different news cycle would be getting a lot more attention. And it's just kind of been pushed to the side, but we thought that was something that's absolutely worth worth following. Right. So you said earlier that there's been five journalists murdered in Mexico this year. That makes them the deadliest country in the world for journalists so far this year, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Uh, you know, just to broaden this out a bit, it does signal some pretty frightening trends in the global realm of press freedoms. 2016 had the record number of journalists imprisoned, according to CPJ. And now we have Trump taking office as president of the United States, which has traditionally been sort of a symbolic figurehead for press freedom abroad. Trump very much rhetorically condones crackdowns on media freedoms. And Joel Simon, executive director of CPJ, wrote at CJR.org the other day that Trump has what he called the press freedom violators trifecta, meaning that he's met and praised Presidents Erdogan of Turkey, El-Sisi of Egypt, and Xi of China. Those three guys are the leading jailers of journalists in the world. It's not like Trump, although he said he would like to put journalists in jail, not like he is doing that anytime soon, but it is something that we should watch what tone he sets around the world. And as Margaret Sullivan wrote in the Washington Post this morning, it's not inconceivable that Trump could use laws that are on the books, specifically the Espionage Act, to jail journalists. Finally, there is more non-Trump-related breaking news this morning. We're recording here on, on Thursday. Yeah, Roger Ailes, founder of Fox News ousted last July, passed away this morning. Um, What is there to say? I mean, there's two ways to go about it, right? And you already see sort of lines drawn in the sand for how journalists and analysts are going about remembering Roger Ailes. One is sort of the cold-hearted analytical take about how he irrevocably changed political media and sort of the United States political culture, broadly speaking. The other one is focusing in on the fact that he created a culture within Fox News of rampant misogyny, alleged racism, a just fact-free culture and perpetuating an incredible myth that Fox News was in some ways a fair and balanced news organization when any intellectually honest observer would see otherwise. Right. I mean, I think both of those things have to go between the commas on the obituary, that he did change the face of political journalism, I would argue not for the better. And I think a lot of intellectually honest observers would agree with that. And also his personal life, his behavior, his treatment of women at Fox, the culture he created and allowed to exist there, that is a huge part of the story and something that, you know, is going to be a part of his legacy forever. And it's it's another good time to just mention Gretchen Carlson and the praise that she deserves for being willing to come forward 
and create the space for other women to speak up and to expose what was really going on behind the scenes at that network. Right. Yeah. I'm constantly fascinated by Fox. And I think it's it's very fair to say that Roger Ailes was a media genius. A journalism educator I follow on Twitter posed a really interesting point earlier today that's, that's been weighing on me heavily, which is that Roger Ailes exploited a need, but he didn't create that need. And we all need to ruminate on what exactly that means. And if you look closely at Fox, or at least when I watch Fox, what I see is a reaction to liberal dominance of media culture. That's something that's very deep-seated that goes back decades. And I just wonder now, you know, Fox came into the game in 1996 where we were in a very different media environment, uh, much more easy to understand, far fewer options, whereas now it's much more fragmented. It's all over the place. And I wonder if there's ever going back to sort of the situation we had before Fox, you know, regaining some semblance of cultural bond between audience and producer. Yeah, I think part of what he accomplished was to drive a wedge between any sort of consensus, any sort of national understanding of the way things are. There's been plenty written about the red and blue versions of America. And what Roger Ailes capitalized on was this realization, as you said, this situation that existed before Fox News came into being. But I don't think you can understate what the effect of Fox News and the type of programming he chose to run, what that did to that divide. All right, we have a major breaking news. We're interrupting that report. Uh, Jeff Zeleny. We've been hearing a lot of that this week from Wolf Blitzer and others in the mainstream media. And the dominant narratives that are emerging are a White House under siege, confusion within the Trump administration, an expanding investigation into, into his campaign's ties with Russia, and then also heightened scrutiny of his decision to fire FBI Director James Comey. That's the version of events that you see in the mainstream media, the New York Times, CBS News, NBC, the Lester Holtz of the world. But there's another version of events that exists that's very widely prevalent uh, on the internet and on and cable television in particular. And when I use the term parallel media universes, I don't do so lightly. The pro-Trump media has come out with an absolutely different version of events for a, a very remarkable news cycle. We both spent some time in that alternate universe, and it is like you are living a different story, living in a different country. There's many different outlets that push that narrative from Fox News. Everything we have been telling you since November the 8th has been coming to fruition. That, of course, was Sean Hannity, one of the chief water carriers for the Trump administration, speaking on Fox News in his usual 10 o'clock hour. Five powerful groups are now aligning to take down President Trump. Their goal is simple. They do not want President Trump to govern, and they will do anything and say anything to stop him from enacting the agenda you elected him to enact. But there's other places, other outlets that have also taken up the banner of Trumpism. It's sort of difficult to give a lay of the land of this environment because it is something that didn't exist 10 years ago. And it's very fragmented, which is a word I overuse, but it's everything from Breitbart to more conspiratorial sites like Infowars. There's a wide ecosystem of right-wing and conservative blogs. When you're going to more conspiratorial than Breitbart, we're already stepping into the there's, deep end. There's the Got pool. News, there's Gateway Pundit, there's WorldNet Daily. There's all these different things. There's Mike Cernovich, who might be in a class in and of himself. All of these are very influential figures within media. They have, they have learned how to capitalize on social media in a way that many in the mainstream media really haven't been able to. And they're pushing 
a very distinct set of narratives. Again, having spent some time in this world over the last week, you are not hearing the same stories in some ways because they're not reporting on them. But in other cases, they are addressing the whether it's Comey, whether it's Russia, whether it's the general state of the administration. They are addressing those from a completely different perspective with a very different set of assumptions that undergirds those rep the reporting that they do or the commentary, I should say, that they do. And I know that for the CJR audience and the InfoWars audience, there might not be a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. One of the names that we've used a lot and that appears in kind of our media, Twitter timelines a lot is Alex Jones. And in between apologizing to pizza parlors and yogurt companies, he has time to say things like this. Let's country. just tell Soros, Brock, and all of them, we're beating you. You'll never defeat America. You'll never mount our head on the wall. Roger, join me. America will defeat you. Join me in this. Come on, all Roger. Right. All right. There you go. David Brock <laughs> Yeah, Alex Jones is definitely on the more conspiratorial end of things. You know, if you spend time watching his videos, which I tend to do on <laughs> lonely Friday nights with a few beers in me. <laughs> that's it's, that's uh, a real peek behind the curtain <laughs> of the life of David Berti. Right, exactly. I mean, he, it is difficult for me to understand what exactly is going through his head, whether he's a cynic and he's duping his viewers for commercial gain or whether he is a true believer in a lot of the things that he says. He's, he's for example, a Sandy Hook truther. He basically believes there is a plot of leftist globalists trying to take power away from Trump in the White House. People such as Alex Jones support their operations in many cases by selling odd products such as fluoride-free toothpaste or vitality so, supplements. Vitality supplements. It's Prep just, uh, I mean, some of it is it's catering to a prepper market, people that are expecting the worst. And under the Obama years, they were constantly waiting for him to come take away their guns and, right. you know, impose martial law and all of the other kind of shady conspiracies that we would hear about. Right. And I have to confess that, that you know, beta cucks such as myself just can't <laughs> really keep up with these guys. I mean, like I said, like I do watch Alex Jones from time to time and I have to admit, and I say this with a tad bit of regret, but he's kind of entertaining. Like he, kno he knows how to have a show. He's so crazy that I occasionally watch him for the entertainment value, but it's hard to say how many people who actually tune in to his 700,000 follower Facebook page think the same. There's definitely an element of enjoyable hate watching that goes into whatever the, the count on the views on his videos are. But he also has created a, a very influential following. And when we talk about getting back to the news of the week, the people that are consuming Fox News or perhaps even further to outside the mainstream consuming Alex Jones content, Mike Cernovich content, you just wonder what sort of conversation someone who reads the New York Times and watches NBC News could have with someone who watches Sean Hannity and spends time on Breitbart. Like, how do those two people talk about what's going on this week in a way that isn't anything but two ships passing in the night? Right. Yeah. I want to move on to Mike Cernovich, who emerged from the fever swamps of Gamergate. He's a very influential Twitter troll on the right. He knows how to use uh, social media very adeptly. Uh, this was his take on the Washington Post scoop regarding President Trump's meeting with the Russians. The person who leaked that story to the Washington Post leaked more information than Trump had actually talking about, had actually talked about, right? That is the real story here. Among the interesting things about Cernovich is not only that he has hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers, he posts you know, near nonstop YouTube streams, but he also, turns out, gets a couple of scoops. 
He occasionally publishes true information. For this whole conversation, we should make sure to mention that Charlie Warzel at BuzzFeed has been cataloging this, what he calls, upside-down media world and doing a great job of it. But he had a, a great piece earlier this week that was titled, What Happens When the Pro-Trump Media Gets Actual Scoops? And he cited Cernovich, who in April correctly reported that Susan Rice had requested to unmask the identities of Trump associates. Later, he tweeted, breaking news, possible airstrikes by the U.S. and Syria tonight, about half an hour before Trump made the decision to launch those strikes. And then he had a story about General H.R. McMaster drawing up a plan to increase troop levels in Afghanistan. All of those were true, and he was the first to report them. And interestingly enough, Cernovich, in one of his recent YouTube videos, actually addressed this very fact. Here's Cernovich. My role has shifted from a kind of propagandist to a journalist, right? Now, I know that with the left, they're all propagandists. None of them are real journalists. Well, they're like 10. So I just can't run and call every story fake. Because if I run and call every story fake, then when I have really big news, nobody's really going to believe me, right? So the question really remains is how we should treat these people. I mean, these are very serious figures. They definitely influence the broader debate. They have huge followings of they're social in, media. They're in the White House briefing room. They're in the White House briefing room. We've had at least one of them at the Columbia Journalism School, someone from Gateway Pundit here talking uh, to students about covering the White House. They're definitely part of the conversation, but I don't know exactly what the best way is to either take their views into account, to try to ignore them. I mean, what's the balance? As you mentioned, they have this following. They have this influence. I don't think we can ignore them. I think we're past that point. I don't have an answer about how to best address this segment of the media because, as we just said, they are sometimes breaking news. And at other times, they are propagating conspiracy theories that are just absolutely crazy sometimes racist, sometimes misogynist. These are not serious journalists, yet at times, whether through you know, friendly sources in the Trump administration, they're getting fed news. I, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer. I think it's worth pointing out that on the right, where you have de a decades-long tradition of critiquing the mainstream media, uh, you know, telling people why the mainstream media is, is sort of biased against you, within elite conservative media, there's at least some appearance of, you know, tapping the brakes here, saying, hey, maybe not all news is fake. Maybe you should actually think critically about all media that you consume, because sometimes newspapers and mainstream media outlets get it correct. There are a lot of people on the right in kind of the conservative establishment who have been, long been critics of the mainstream media who may be regretting the monster that they've created. And whether those are some of the more serious people at Fox News or writers of publications like National Review and Weekly Standard, there was a great essay by Kevin D. Williamson in National Review recently that essentially addressed his conservative audience and their concerns about mainstream media. The takeaway line in this address to his readers was, here's a little secret for you. The news ain't fake. And he's referencing there the scoops by the New York Times, the Washington Post, these damaging stories about Donald Trump. The fact that that needs to be said to a, a group of National Review readers is a kind of symptom of where we are in our media alternate universes. The upshot is to be careful out there, folks, and don't try any of that Alex Jones toothpaste anytime soon.
For nearly two centuries, the black press has been a fixture in African-American communities around the country. Newspapers such as the New York Amsterdam News and the Chicago Defender not only covered issues mainstream media ignored, but also acted as a powerful advocate for equality in cities around the country. But the transition to digital publishing has been particularly perilous for black-owned media, which holds the potential for far-reaching implications. Joining me to talk about it now is Glenn Birkins, editor and publisher of Q-City Metro, a news site dedicated to covering the African-American community in Charlotte. Glenn, how's it going? I'm well. How are you? Thanks for being on the show. You've seen this issue up close with your site, which I'd like to get into later on, but you also wrote a piece in our recent issue, and that's out on CGR.org today, about the black press and the digital age. Let's start there. Why are black publishers having such difficulty gaining digital traction? Well, I think they're having trouble for the same reason that the mainstream media had trouble initially, because it's a very challenging situation when you're trying to make money in a in an environment where online you're making uh, maybe dimes on the dollar for what you were once making in print. There's just simply not the same level of revenue there. And for these black publishers who are to a large degree underfunded to begin with, this can be challenging. One of the editors that I talked with, she talked about the need to hire a digital editor and and to bring in people who are quite different than the staff she currently has, but she doesn't have the means and wherewithal to do that. Digital investment requires so much capital. And I think one of the, the interesting things that you brought up in your piece is that some of the bright spots in local publishing generally have come at the very hyper-local level, people basically investing their own money or you know, funding very small startups. But the point you make is that there's obviously a wealth gap with the African-American community. And then also, you know, the community of black journalists has spent so long to get into an industry, to get a, get a foothold, and now the, the sort of foothold has been pulled out from under them. So why go into something that's so seemingly unstable, economically speaking? I took a huge financial hit to do what I'm doing. I was deputy managing editor at the Charlotte Observer. I, I was making a pretty good living for myself and my family. Uh, I went from that to zero at a time when I had a daughter in the 10th grade, two years out from college, in the teeth of the recession. I did this in November 2008. There just aren't many people of, of, of any race who are able to do this or willing to do this. And when you're talking about the African-American community where there is a wealth gap to begin with, it's even harder. So there's been a bit of reinvestment in African-American-centric coverage at the national level. You have sites like The Root and then The Undefeated, which is a site I really enjoy because I like sports. Um, but I'm curious, with, with these local publishers that you're focusing in on, what is lost at an, an institutional level? What role have these publishers historically played within various African-American communities at the local level? Those publishers traditionally have covered their communities, and to some degree, they're still doing it. But in, in a digital age, it's, it's much harder. I'll give you an example. Today here in Charlotte, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office locally made a major announcement that they arrested eight gang members with ties to the, to the Bloods, African Americans. Well, this story was up on most websites within minutes. If you are an African-American underfunded website, how do you compete with, say, the Charlotte Observer, which sends maybe two photographers and certainly two writers? And, you know, it's, it's just very hard to compete in the digital age. Uh, in the print age, I think the African-American press had much more of an opportunity 
to compete, even though most of these publications are weekly. But now this story is going to be old news a week from now when these weekly publications come out. What role does it play that the mainstream media institutions have also been uh, desegregated to, you know, African-American talent? I would imagine 50 years ago, young black reporters couldn't even get into, you know, most newsrooms. They wouldn't be hired. Whereas now, one that immediately comes to mind, who's a rising star, is Wes Lowry at the, the Washington Post. I feel like maybe 50 years ago, he would have been working at a black-owned newspaper. The goal is to have a more representative media, broadly speaking. So I'm curious what your perspective is of what's the difference of having sort of self-contained black media institutions or having black journalists work at mainstream media institutions? That's a difficult question to answer. I think in some <laughs> ways we've come full circle. Right. I remember talking with one publisher who says because of the layoffs that are going on in mainstream media, she's able to pick up some African-American talent she might not have been able to get, you know, five years ago, ten years ago. So I think to some degree, uh, there's more talent out there chasing fewer jobs, and that's helping the black press. On the other hand, I don't think a lot of newspapers today, mainstream newspapers, their staffs are nearly as diverse as they were when I was in the business. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily any fault of their own necessarily, but when you're having the types of layoffs that that we've seen, one, you have African-American reporters who are being laid off, but then two, you also have those who are just frustrated and are just giving up and saying, this isn't a profession that I want to be in anymore, and they're walking off doing other things. Right. I think there's probably a very good argument to be made that also sort of getting into the business, the barrier to entry might be greater now, just given the fact that you have to take unpaid internships, for example, or extremely low-paying job uh, right off the bat, in addition to, you know, the layoff issue, as you mentioned. I was talking with two college students just today, and uh, really bright students looking for internships, can't find in- internships that are even even free internships. Mm. But that appears to be the bulk of what's out there right now, are free internships. So I'm going to try to you know scrape together a few nipples and help these reporters write some stories over the summer. Mm. So I'm curious to hear more about your experience. QCDmetro.com, you founded in 2008. That's, that's like an eternity in, in the, uh, the world of a hyper-local startup. It's been an eternity in my life, too. <laughs> How have you approached it from like a business editorial perspective? I'm curious on getting it off the ground. I mean, what exactly did that take and then also sustaining it? I had no idea what I was getting into when I launched QCity Metro. Um, I was naive in a lot of ways about what it would take to launch and particularly sustain it. And especially going into the teeth of the Great Recession, as I did, I guess I probably spent about Thirty-five, forty thousand dollars of my own money to build the site and to actually launch it. Wow! And those, and those first two years, I didn't bring in enough revenue to buy a good steak dinner. Hmm. That has changed now, and things are looking up. We're on a record-setting year this year in terms of revenue. We're still not where we need to be, and I'm certainly not getting rich by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't wake up at night wondering how I'm going to pay reporters. I don't wonder. I don't, I don't wake up at night wondering how I'm going to pay graphic designers and people who help me produce this website. And so things are improving. We've had to look for innovative ways to do that. I went into it thinking that we could just go out and sell ads and that would bring in enough money. At the end of the day, that didn't work. We had to go more to a sponsorship model where we go to uh, local businesses and local organizations here 
and we talk to them about a year-long commitment. Mm. Uh, we're having to do more event-type things that will bring in revenue. So it's been a total readjustment of my thinking in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the things that I thought would work and generate success did not. And when you approach businesses for sponsorships, or I mean, even when you approach people in the community for just covering them, I mean, how do you convey your mission? And you know, if you're trying to bring in new business partners, how do you sell yourself to them? After eight years, I'm pretty well known in the community. Mm. That was that was a much harder issue. My first say five years, but after eight years, people know who I am. I'm a, uh, a weekly guest on public radio here on some of the talk shows. So people know who I am, and we've been out there enough now that that isn't so much of a problem. Within your local market, can you give me an example of, of how your site tries to cover news, whether from a different perspective or different issues more aggressively than, say, the local mainstream newspaper or the local TV station? Well, believe it or not, eight years in, we're still trying to find our voice, actually. Mm. And here's what I mean by that. I was, I was trained as a traditional reporter. I was trained to keep my voice out of stories, to be completely uh, objective or, or, or as objective as I could possibly be. And that's kind of in my DNA as a reporter. And, I, and, and I've spent some of the last eight years trying to get that out of my DNA. I believe Q-City Metro should be more of an advocate for its readers than I would have ever wanted to be or feel feel comfortable being uh, as a as a mainstream reporter editor, and that's not been an easy road for me because, as I said, that traditional training is so ingrained in me that I want to approach stories, you know, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> uh, and I think we need to move more toward just a little bit more toward advocacy. In what particular way do you mean? I mean, you, you advocate for your readers, but how so? Uh, speaking with a very distinct voice. We're never going to compete with, with local media in terms of covering first day events. We don't have the manpower to send people to school board meetings to sit there for hours and write about what happened at the school board meeting. What we have to do is try to help our readers understand maybe that second day what that school board decision meant for them mm. uh, in a way that a mainstream publication might not. Yeah, you, you definitely pick your spots. We definitely have to pick our spots. And that's been one of the toughest things for me because I'm, I'm very competitive personally. I was very competitive as a reporter. And when something big happens, I want to jump on it. But we, d- we just simply don't have those kind of resources. Well, Glenn, it's been great to have you on. And I wish you best of luck in Charlotte with QCDMetro.com. Everyone, check out Glenn's piece in CJR.org. It is out today. It is well worth your time. Glenn, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to give a big thanks to Glenn Birkins from QCDmetro.com and also Pete Vernon, a Delacorte fellow here at CJR. Please subscribe, comment on, and share our shows wherever you get your podcasts. And also go to CJR.org. we got a lot of great stuff for you. Thanks again for kicking with us. We'll see you next week.